A note on this, um, this text and this sermon before I read the before I read the text. And I have to thank Blaze for for uh, bringing up this. I guess it's a metaphor from Corey Tenboom, or Corey Tenboom's father. Um, in one of her books, she talks about how, as a little girl, she asked her father, "What is what is sex sin?" And her father, and they were in this, they were in this train station, and her father was carrying these big, heavy briefcases or these big, heavy, you know, suitcases, and. He said, do you see how these suitcases are really big and heavy? I'm, I wouldn't make you carry these. You're just a little girl. I wouldn't make you carry these. Some of you are going to be young enough to not know what it is that I'm really talking about, and that's okay. It's not yours to carry yet. And when it comes time to understand more, your parents will help you to be able to pick up and carry this. But I just want you to know that right off the bat. So, let's look at this commandment. Here it is from the mountaintop, from Sinai, and respoken to Moses, through Moses, to the people of Israel. And you shall not commit adultery. I went and saw the uh, movie Sound of Freedom this week, and one of the things, you know, the the reasons behind it. Um, was the idea that storytelling is powerful. Storytelling is, is powerful. You know, the person who tells a story, they get to determine the rules. They get to determine what's right and wrong. They get to determine who the heroes and the villains are. Not only does the storyteller get to introduce you to the heroes and villains, they actually get to tell you what makes the heroes heroic, what makes the villains so villainous. The storyteller gets to determine what the characters are there for. And when you hear the opening lines of a story, if you're an attentive listener, you can already tell, perhaps, where the story is heading. And if your story begins with once upon a time, you can be pretty sure that there will be a young maiden needing some help, probably because there's an evil stepmother. And there will probably be somewhere in the middle of the story a young knight who just so happens to be a prince from a far-off land coming to rescue her. And she is probably a princess, although she doesn't know it at the time. And you know, for good measure, let's just throw a dragon in as well. You've got to have a dragon in all these good once upon a time stories. And we know the prince will come and slay the dragon and save the princess, and they will marry, and they will all live happily ever after. 
that happily ever after is pretty much guaranteed as, in the, as a last line, even in the first line, once upon a time. You kind of know they're going to come together. But we live in a story. We live in a story. And the world, the flesh, and the devil have one way of telling the story that is exceedingly popular in our day. And if we let them be the storyteller, if we let them have the pen and start writing and narrating and telling us how it is, how we got here, we're gonna, we end up letting them determine the heroes and the villains. The way our flesh and the world around us and the devil tell the story is like this. The laws of nature have, through the working of chance over billions of years, brought about life on this planet. Life under a system of survival of the fittest. Life whose main driving purpose is just to reproduce and continue itself. To reproduce, to evolve, to change. And in fact, without that drive to reproduce being as strong and as powerful and as central as it is, life would have dried up and been extinguished. That's the way the story is told. And if that's the kind of story we are living in, then the drive to reproduce is really the hero of the story. It's the very thing that kept life going on earth for so long. And anyone, tell, and, and anyone who tells you that you need to curb your natural reproductive desires is really the villain. Anyone who says you shall not commit adultery is the enemy to what's life. Because according to the way the story is told by the world, the flesh, and the devil, sexual desire is the most fundamental desire all living creatures on earth have. Nothing is more innate, necessary, or good than these desires. So the story goes. But that is not the story we live in. That's a fable, a fiction, a fairy tale. We live in a true story where a prince from a faraway kingdom has come to slay the dragon and rescue the princess and marry her and live happily ever after. And if we don't recognize the kind of story we're in, if we accept the story the way that it's usually told to us, then we will not be able to deal properly with the commandments of God. The commandments will seem to be mere prohibitions that stifle our natural tendencies. It will seem like God is trying to box us in with his commandments and deprive us of what is truly good. But none of the Ten Commandments are mere prohibitions. They're not just negatives. They don't just prohibit something. They positively offer something better. And what God prohibits in the commandment is truly bad. It's not a half good. It's truly evil. And what he offers in the commandment, what the commandment protects and preserves, is truly good. So we'll look at this commandment from those two sides. What he prohibits, what is evil, 
And then from the side of what good he protects and provides for with this commandment. And all the while we're doing that, we must remember the kind of story that we're in. So let's look at what God prohibits in the seventh commandment. Well, in short, I'm just going to go right away and say it and then, and then provide some backing for it. What God prohibits in the seventh commandment is anything outside the original pattern in Genesis 2 of one man and one woman united in marriage for life. Well, the seventh commandment prohibits is anything outside the original pattern found in Genesis 2 of one man and one woman united in marriage for life. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, we'll see how Jesus addresses and appeals to the beginning of the story. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, we see, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. When the question of divorce is brought up to Jesus, he doesn't go back to the commandments. He goes farther back. He goes back to the very beginning. He appeals not only to the commands of God, he appeals to the very way God made humanity. And that's the way we also have to reason. We must understand that all other kinds of sexual relations are outside the way God made us to live. We are not slightly higher than apes, owing our existence to base instinct. We are made in God's image from the ground, formed with his own hands. And when the story begins there, the commandment isn't a burden against what was our natural way we ought to live. It is a protection to keep us in line with how God made us. Let's look also at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll turn there. Another place in the New Testament that helps us to combat this storytelling scheme of the devil. The storytelling that has taken root so much in our culture, in our own way of thinking. In 
In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our good, God. So let me recap then the list so far of the prohibitions that we've seen just in these two, three, three places. Adultery, number one, right there in the commandment, explicitly prohibited. And then we see from Jesus, divorce, except in the case of sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul also adds abandonment by an unbelieving spouse as grounds for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. Sexual immorality, which is a term used for all unlawful sexual relations. And we see Paul also calls out homosexuality explicitly alongside sexual immorality and adultery. So now is when we have to remember the kind of story we're in. Because if we believe the story the way the world, the flesh, and the devil tell us, it will make us chafe under this list of prohibitions. We'll be tempted to find excuses for one or many of these sins. Creating categories for no-fault divorce. Because why should these two incompatible people be forced to stay together? Considering cohabitation of people not married to be okay as long as they're committed to each other and love each other. Forgetting that the Bible has a word for this, fornication. Thinking that the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality is condemning a community of people based on their identity. But we are not in charge of this story. Why is no-fault divorce wrong? That's what the Jews were practicing under Moses. It's wrong because of Jesus' words, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's very true if it was just me or us or some group commanding that a couple has to stay married against their desire to simply go off and meet other people. That, that wouldn't work. But it's God who made us, who can and does Make that command. And what's wrong with cohabitation? That's what Jesus says a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is a relationship that God blesses to have all the sexual relations you want, and it's called marriage. He's created it for that, and of course, for other reasons as well. Why 
Isn't the condemnation of homosexuality a cruel and unfair condemnation to an entire community of people? Here's where the understanding of the story is so important. Because if we are merely creatures of our lusts, and our baser desires really are deeply seated as part of our identity, then perhaps it would be appropriate to have concern that we're condemning people for their identity. But we are not merely creatures made by our sexual desires through the long march of evolutionary progress. We are made in the image of God, male and female. And we are capable of being remade by Christ. The tense of verbs is really important in the Bible. When Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, he says, and such were some of you. Some of the Corinthian Christians were adulterers. They were sexually immoral. They were practicers of homosexuality. They were, but they no longer are. Because what Paul says to them, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our identity is wrapped up in what God says and sees and makes of us. Something else also needs to be added to the list of prohibitions. As Blaze read this morning from Matthew 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, quoting this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Lust needs to be added to this list of prohibitions. And we've seen Jesus do this before. He takes the commandment from the hand of Moses, written on stone tablets, and he drives it right into our hearts. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. From it we get the word pornography. It's not a trifling matter. We might be willing to say, yes, it's something that can hurt our relationships, maybe even ruin our marriages. But it's not simply a personal problem. It's not a problem husbands have with their wives. And so they go to look. It's a problem between you and God. What does Jesus say? He says, lust will have your whole body thrown into hell if you don't cut it out. 
You must fight it at all times to cut lust off before it can take hold of you. But here's where we have to be careful. Because there are ways to make ourselves free from lust in a way that a self-righteous, condemned Pharisee would be free. Working up under our own power, under our own steam, with some appeal to willpower, And instead of being condemned by lust, we're condemned by the fact that we're not trusting God for our salvation. We're trusting our ability to fight. So yes, we have to cut it off, but we have to cut it off with the right tools. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, prayer at all times in the Spirit, putting on, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And one of the great ways that God helps us in this is what he has offered us positively in the seventh commandment. We have to look and see, not that it's just something that hampers us, hinders us, squashes down our desires, but rather opens us up to complete flourishing to goodness, as God intended it. So let's look at what God offers in the seventh commandment. There's a lot of places we could go in the scriptures. I'm just going to go to one. Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon is telling his son to avoid adultery, to avoid the adulterous woman. And this is what he says to his son, starting in verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. All right, what are you talking about, Solomon? Water, cisterns, springs. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Ah, okay. You're talking in metaphors now, you wise guy. All right. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The warnings of God protect us. The warnings of God protect us so that we can have the blessings of God. Adultery is forbidden so that life may flourish. Because marriage is life-giving and even life-creating. I mean, what a gift from God that instead of just 
making us out of a lump of clay and saying, all right, here you go. Off into the world you go. Enjoy the wilderness. Figure it out. Instead, we're made in the care of a home with a father and a mother. So this commandment sets the way before us. Will you die going to the adulteress? Or will you live rejoicing in the wife of your youth? Do you know the kind of story you're in? It's the kind of story where God is taking over the world, reclaiming his creation. And he's doing it through people, through husbands and wives who are faithful to him and to each other through fathers and mothers who bear children as the Lord's heritage. And make no mistake, we are not in some downward spiral that can't be corrected and will only get worse until Jesus returns. We are not in a downward spiral. We are characters in God's story. We're not the main character, but we do get the honor of watching him work and working with him on his quest to retake the kingdom for his father from the terrible dragon who has claimed it for the time being. The terrible dragon whose head is already crushed. When Christ said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that included the authority that God gave to Adam when he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, and possess it. Now the kingdom of God only grows through the proclamation of the gospel. But we don't just proclaim it to strangers around us, we proclaim it to the children God has given us. Because he hasn't scrapped his original design of having his people, his family, Take the Garden of Eden and bring its borders out and out and out into the wilderness until the whole of the earth is the Lord's. He hasn't scrapped that project, he's redeemed it in Christ. That's what marriage is for. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, which we've looked at pretty recently, that the marriage of a husband and a wife is really a picture of Christ and his church. If you consider that relationship of real love and submission between Christ and his church, husbands and wives, you get to play a part in that. And not just a bit part, Not just a cheap imitation, but by the power of Christ, husbands and wives, you get to experience through your relationship with each other something of that eternal relationship that the church will have with Christ in glory. This commandment doesn't stifle us.
And we may be willing to admit that as believers, well, of course this is good, but this commandment doesn't stifle anyone, believer or unbeliever. Everyone, everyone who came from Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, male and female, he made them. So as a conclusion, there's three things to remember. First, remember the kind of story that we're in. The story where there is a God who made us, a God who owns us, who is good to us, who is redeeming us, and not just us, but the whole earth and all the stars above our heads too. That in the beginning was not some impersonal process that slowly worked its way up into creating life. No, in the beginning there was life, life abundant, life eternal, perfect, wonderful, joyous life. God was there in the beginning. And he's the author of the story and he's writing it. And his ways are good. Secondly, remember that God changes our identity. He's the one who made us. He has claims to us by rights. In any and every way that any of us have broken this commandment, as I know we all have, The answer is not, I will try a little harder tomorrow. The answer is, and must begin with, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's the author of the story. He's the one doing the real heavy lifting, the work. We have to trust him that he's doing it. And then finally, remember the end of the story. The end of the story when we have a happily ever after, a dead dragon a bridegroom and a bride, God's son, the lamb who was slain for his people, his church, whom he purchased. And it says in Revelation, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints.
These commandments are to that purpose. That the saints would be granted to live righteous lives and do righteous deeds. And on the last day, appear before God right and pure. And of course, it's the last day not because everything ends then. It's the last day because the night is over with. There's not another tomorrow because the sun doesn't set. In fact, of course, it's the lamb who is there, the bridegroom who is the light of his people. That's the story we're in. That's what this commandment is for. It doesn't fit if you don't know the story. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are, have worked for centuries at replacing this story with something completely different. And it's worked very well at giving us a bad taste in our mouth for God and his commandments. But he's the Lord. He's the author. He's the storyteller. He's the one who grants the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So then, know that you have been washed. Know that you have been sanctified. Know that you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to see where we have been deceived by the schemes of the world and the devil and our own flesh into reading something else into the way the world works, into seeing with clouded eyes. Help us, Lord, to see the beauty the glory, the goodness of how you made us, how you made humanity, the purpose you made us for. That we're not just aimlessly wandering, having to figure out on our own and make up for ourselves what our purpose is. Help us to see and open our eyes and take the scales off. That you have made us for yourself. You have made us for yourself. And you are doing the work of making us bright and pure and ready. that we would be married to the Lamb.
Help us to go and be lights in a dark world because we know the real story. We know the real way of things. We know reality much more deeply than anyone. Not because we're wise or smart or great in any way, but because you have revealed it to us. You've been merciful to us. In Jesus Christ, you have been merciful to us. So merciful that you give us Jesus Christ himself to be ours forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.